0: Please be seated. That's church, everyone. Being able to see the love of Jesus in His eyes and realizing His mission is to take those of us who are broken, these empty broken vessels, and give us life. Let us celebrate that as we're here together today. I'm here to read scripture for Pastor Yuri. Um, I'll originally be reading from Haggai, verse two, verses twenty to twenty-three. That's on page 916 of your pew Bible, and then I'll guide you along our three readings. Haggai 220 to 23. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zervabil, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty." And now from Hebrews 12, 22 to 29 on page 1170 of your pew Bible. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And now from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, I'll actually read down to the end of 10, page 1151. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I am telling the truth I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly and with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for people who profess to worship God. Let's pray. Lord, as we move now towards listening to your word as brought to us by Pastor Yuri, we pray that his heart will be filled with your spirit, that his words will be your words, and that we might be able to learn from the Master Almighty through Yuri. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Brother Neil. It's good to see you with us this morning, and good to see have all of you Here with us this morning. I'm just going to pray once again. Lord, may these be your words, not mine. May people's attention and gaze be directed to you, not to me. May you take all the praise and all the blame. (laughs) But Lord, we thank you that you. By the blood of your Son, have redeemed us, that we can walk in confidence and peace. So give me peace as I bring this word, open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. Amen. If you'll remember what we said back at the beginning of June, to follow Haggai's advice to consider our ways we need to think of our ways not just our ways not just as the things that we do just as important as our actions and the results that they might bring about are our convictions and beliefs the attitudes that we hold because they often determine our ways, the kinds of things that we do. For instance, to decide how we as Christians ought to behave in the modern world, how we ought to respond to the challenges that we face to determine what faithfulness looks like for us. We need to have a proper understanding of our place in history. But of course, as important as the kind of history that you'll find in textbooks is, it's not the history that the people of God ought to be mainly concerned with. History, as it's told by other humans, will always be told from the perspective of the world's current winners. What we need more than anything is the kind of history that you find in the Bible, history told from an eternal perspective, God's perspective. In the Bible, God has preserved something precious, something that, all things being equal, we would not have so readily available to us. The history that humanity rehearses to itself doesn't take much interest in what God thinks and has said. It certainly does not take seriously the religious claims of a relatively small number of people. It marginalizes people whose thoughts and activities appear to be, well, marginal, insignificant, inconsequential, irrelevant. But this, this is precisely the claim, the wonderfully outlandish claim, the, the fantastically astonishing claim that the Bible challenges us to embrace, that it and it alone contains the official history of God's intervention with fallen humanity. Being not a human book but a divine book, the Bible claims to be the only reliable source for what God is like the only reliable record of what he has said to us and what he has done for us. And it's precisely because this claim seems so absurd and unlikely that the Bible, not to mention those who stubbornly believe that it is God's word, requires sustained divine protection. The popular view among Christians is that belief in the Bible is utterly sane and reasonable. And of course, when you actually take the time to examine it seriously, it is. But to the rest of the world, that suggestion is silly that the reason this book has not only survived but remains a living and active part of people's daily routines the world over is that it has not only been supernaturally preserved but that it is itself in some way living and active? Come on. The curious few might search for more familiar reasons that have to do with power, privilege, and politics. But most people will dismiss it out of hand. But all you have to do is look inside and read what it says to know that without the strong and lasting encouragement of someone big, these unpopular words would have vanished. Hmm. I think I've lost my PowerPoint. That's okay. These unpopular words would have vanished. They would have simply died on the vine long before they had a chance to take hold, to leave an imprint on anyone's mind, let alone their heart. Today I'll offer as evidence of that an aspect of Haggai that we haven't spent much time considering so far, and that is the sheer number of times that Haggai insists that he is speaking for God. So look, turn with me to the book of Haggai once again. Haggai, chapter 2. I think it was page 917 in your pew Bibles, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm scrambling a little bit because I had a lot of PowerPoint slides (laughs) that somehow uh, didn't get sent in my file. So Haggai chapter 2, page 917. We're talking about the sheer number of times that Haggai insists that he's speaking for God. And really, it's kind of annoying. You'd say that Haggai gets an F for style, since he seems like he does this far more than he needs to. He does it so much that it makes his actual message harder to understand. The few words that he does say are all chopped up. They're less beautiful because he keeps getting in the way of the flow to remind us that God is speaking. Not he, Haggai. So let's look at the very last verse of this book. On that day declares the Lord Almighty. I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. declares the Lord. And I will make you my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. The narrator has already told us back in verse 20 that this is a message from God. And not just that, but he was also at pains to tell us that this was the second message that Haggai received that day. So, if efficiency and style were the narrator's main concerns, he could have told us way back in verse 10 that God gave Haggai two messages on this very special day, the day on which they officially dedicated the foundation of the temple, and then carefully edited Haggai's speeches to give him a bit of a lift, to make him sound a bit more... Artful, a little bit more educated. But instead, he seems to have left what Haggai said exactly as he delivered it, delivered it. It seems that every time Haggai delivered a message from God, it was littered with phrases like, declares the Lord, and this is what the Lord Almighty says. In this tiny book, in his five short prophetic utterances, by my count, Haggai peppers his words this way 20 times. And it seems that the reason the narrator left them all in is that he had a similar concern, because those 20 don't even count all the times that the narrator himself tells us that Haggai is speaking for God. Seven additional times the narrator reminds his readers Of this fact. So, why this heavy handed emphasis? It's because an integral part of Haggai's message was the fact that it was God who was speaking. We don't know how long Haggai lived, but certainly the time of his prophetic mission from the beginning of the sixth month to the end of the ninth month of one year, that must have only been a tiny fraction of it, obviously. And even if, as it seems, he was a humble man, a man of few words, the words that he spoke on these occasions would have been tiny compared to the total number of words that even the most withholding person speaks over a lifetime. And even then, word for word, the second biggest emphasis of his messages, using two-thirds of the words that he used to initially tell the people to rebuild the temple, two-thirds were devoted to plastering each message with these insistent alerts so that there would be no way, absolutely no way to miss the fact that these were not Haggai's own words. It was not Haggai's opinion that the misery the people had experienced was due to the temple remaining in ruins. It was not Haggai's own opinion that what they offered at the altar was unclean. It was not even his own opinion that God was about to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land to shower the temple with the treasure of the nations. It was not merely his own opinion that God was present with them. These were God's own words. And as I said, the narrator followed Haggai's lead In offering this same emphasis. But also look in chapter 1, verse 12, where the narrator tells us that the people listened to Haggai's, frankly, kind of clumsy and uncomfortable message, and they obeyed. Why? Not because they liked the message, not because they liked the style of the message not because Haggai was a captivating speaker not because Haggai had a winning personality but verse 12 because the Lord their God had sent him because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord and to confirm that Haggai's message was from him, indeed, the only strong confirmation were given that Haggai spoke for God, the next verse, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. When God speaks, it is no dead letter. His word does not die on the vine. He honors it. He brings it to pass as his own spirit stirs people to fulfill it. And this is the content of Haggai's final message. A message given to Zerubbabel, as we read there in verse 21 of chapter 2. Now, Zerubbabel was probably the one who might have needed the most encouragement and guidance of all. He's kind of a mysterious figure. You'll read there in verse 21 that Haggai refers to him as the governor of Judah. At other times, like in verse 23, he refers to him as the son of Shealtiel. When these two things are combined, this suggests a person with an internal conflict Now governor of Judah is a post of kind of uncertain rank but it firmly places Zerubbabel somewhere within the power structure of the Persian empire He would have been an official but not particularly high up kind of a cog in the imperial machine Son of Shealtiel on the other hand confirms him As the crown prince of Judah, heir of King David. He was the grandson of Jehoiachin, the last legitimate ruler of Judah. This same Jehoiachin, God had compared in Jeremiah chapter 22 to a signet ring that he would tear off and hurl into a far off country. Not only that, in that same passage through Jeremiah, God said that it would be like Jehoiachin had had no children, since none of his offspring would rule again in Judah. Well, God's word, as it always does, came true. And it came true in a way that no one could have predicted, a way that was truer than true, a way that resolved all the apparent conflicts, which is also something we should come to expect with God's word. Shealtiel, Jehoiachin's firstborn, never did reign. And contrary to what Haggai suggests, the Bible does not record Shealtiel as having any of his own children at all. Jehoiachin's second son, also childless. We read about this in First Chronicles chapter 3, but it also tells us that Zerubbabel was the firstborn of Jehoiachin's third son, Shealtiel's younger brother, Padaiah. So it seems that as the oldest grandson of Jehoiachin, Zerubbabel was next in line to the throne, and so he may have been ceremonially adopted by Shealtiel, so that there would be no question of who should serve as the next king, if the time ever came when they could have their own king. So what was his status? Zerubbabel might have been just as confused as you or I are feeling right now about where he fit. Adding insult to injury, Zerubbabel's parents gave him this unusual Hebrew name. It's unusual for us. It was unusual back then. It was a name that reflected not only the pain of their circumstances, but also the uncertainty of their future. And maybe when he was born, they weren't expecting that he would be next in line to sit on David's throne. Because Zerubbabel means seed seed of Babylon. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's kind of like if Aragorn's name actually meant made in Mordor. Not a good thing. So God's message in Haggai to Zerubbabel was in fact incredibly hopeful in verse 23 especially. It removed the curse that was uttered against his grandfather. As we see in this verse, the last verse of this book, Zerubbabel was God's chosen. He was God's servant, like David, like Moses. This promise was that God would again take up the signet ring that he had previously torn off and hurled away. Now, a signet ring was the ring that a king would use to make an impression into clay or wax. It was his seal, the tool that certified that a document contained his authentic words. A king's signet ring could be given to an authorized representative to rule on his behalf. So the metaphor of the signet ring in Haggai and Jeremiah's prophecies was symbolic of the authority that Israel's earthly kings had to rule on earth on behalf of God, the heavenly king over all creation. That authority could be taken away just as easily as it had been given. So the immediate encouragement to Zerubbabel was that he would be given the authority from God to accomplish the task that God had set for him, the building of the second temple. But more importantly, the promise that he, Zerubbabel, would be like God's signet ring showed him and his people that the line of kings issuing from David was not broken forever. It would one day be fully restored. A descendant of David would come again to rule the earth. But what was and when was that day? It certainly wasn't Haggai's day. It wasn't even Zerubbabel's day. That day, he says, verse 21, was a day when God would shake the heavens and the earth. Now, as I said earlier in the passage from Hebrews 12 that we read earlier also stated, this wasn't the first shaking that Haggai had told his people about. Let's turn now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. This is page 1170 in your pew Bibles. 1170. Hebrews chapter 12. 1170. Now, Hebrews highlights the fact that Haggai's two shaking prophecies, given two months apart, were not just two visions of the same event. They were not two visions of the same event. The new shaking that Haggai told Zerubbabel about wouldn't be the same shaking as before. The joyful shaking loose of the gold and silver of the nations into God's eternal temple. The temple that not even Solomon or Herod's temple would match for splendor, since, as we learned from various places in the New Testament a couple of weeks ago, the true temple is actually you and me and us all Around the world. The true temple is the ecclesia, the gathered ones, the church of Christ, not an edifice made of wood or bricks, but a people, a heavenward elevation of living stones built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, built on the Word of God, built on Christ Himself. And as Paul says back in 1 Corinthians, It's a passage I didn't use a couple of weeks ago. No one can lay any other foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. But now, this shaking, Hebrews chapter 12, this is now page 1171, verses 25 and 26. This shaking, this new shaking, this terrible shaking is not that joyful. Shaking. Verse 25, from the middle of verse 25, He who warns us from heaven, skipping ahead now to verse 26, He who warns us from heaven now has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He goes on. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming person fire. Now, Hebrews 12 doesn't quote Haggai verbatim, but let's not get hung up on that, because the author of Hebrews adds some words, but he does so intentionally, consciously, simply to clarify Haggai's meaning. His aim is to show us that this shaking is a once more shaking, a separate shaking, a different shaking from the previous one. He also makes clear that Haggai's second shaking prophecy refers to one that doesn't just shake up earthly kingdoms and resources and plans, things that we can see and touch or at least somehow apprehend with our minds. This new shaking accomplishes the shaking up of heavenly realities, created things certainly, as he says in verse 27, or things that have been made, as the ESV puts it, but heavenly, spiritual things nonetheless meaning the shaking of the kinds of things that Paul refers to in Ephesians 6, the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, things that are opaque and mysterious to us. That doesn't mean that this shaking is not detectable by us. It certainly is, and it's often all the more confusing, disturbing, even painful to us, especially because we can't see what this shaking might be accomplishing in the heavenlies. The hints in Haggai 2 verses 20 and, 21 and 22 that this once more shaking is not merely the kind of run-of-the-mill upset that appears to be on the surface are the veiled references it contains to the history of God's people, high points and low points. The specific Hebrew words he used, translated as shake or overthrow, destroy, go down, or phrases like chariots and their riders, or by the sword of his brother, these are intended to link the new shaking that he's talking about to the old events in biblical history. Events that we know had cosmic significance. The flood, the exodus, the conquering of the promised land, the establishment of the monarchy, monarchy, the exile. They're intended to transport us to places that will always take up space in our minds and our spirits, even though some of them no longer existed, even in the physical world in Haggai's day, Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Canaan, Jerusalem, Babylon. They're intended to teach us these words. They're intended to teach us to aspire to be like the people who now seem bigger than we could ever be, too large to have ever actually lived, among others, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Ezra, and Jesus. So this once more shaking is not a one-time shaking. It's a recurrent shaking, a shaking that removes anything that can be shaken, whether things in heaven or things on earth. In other words, any and all created things, visible or invisible. It is a shaking that achieves God's ultimate purpose for us, the making of a people for his own glory, a people like a signet ring bearing his imprint a people he has chosen, his servants, like Zerubbabel, seeds of Babylon, redeemed and anointed, unlikely royalty receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. While this shaking goes on in ways big and small all the time, clearly Haggai has in his mind moments that are Pivotal, moments when that day becomes clearer, more obvious, when the shaking is undeniable and overwhelming and sometimes terrifying, but also when it indicates that the renewal promised to Zerubbabel through his descendant, Jesus, will explode again in a fresh outpouring of his spirit. These are the centuries-long biblical and historical cycles that I've been referring to each Sunday this month. In our first Haggai study, I suggested that I would take a stab at fleshing out where I think we are in history, as we long for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the heir of David, to take up his rule and reign as king on the earth. This is the fruit of a study of the Bible and of history that I have been engaged in for many months. The caveat is that any rubric will always be an oversimplification. Still, the more I study, the more I've come to find this lens, both scriptural as well as helpful. It's also encouraging to me, which is why I wanted to share it with you this morning. So if you've been with us this month, you'll remember that I've identified six biblical periods of renewal, that I've been representing by six men. Noah, Abraham, you can join me if you like, Moses, David, Ezra, and Jesus, who holds us all in his hands. Also, I've been teaching the kids a little bit about the catastrophes that came in between. These I've been representing with places, so we've been talking about Babel, right? Egypt. Canaan and Babylon, but you could just as easily call them confusion, slavery, apostasy, and exile, followed by a period of silence before Jesus came. Since the Bible shows us what's most important, things afterward get a little more complicated, especially because the people of God are now transnational. That said, From my study of history, I'm going to tentatively put forward a period of renewal starting around 400 A.D. And of course it gets impossible, kind of silly, without something like the Bible as a guide to associate the massive moves of God's spirit with one person. But for the sake of my memory and ease, I'm associating that time of renewal with Augustine, 400 A.D. Augustine. Then there seems to have been a renewal around 1,100. and I'm associated that with associating that with Anselm, who's probably the greatest theologian you've never heard of. And then, of course, there's a very clear and familiar renewal in the Reformation, which is traditionally thought to have started in 1517 with Martin Luther, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Ezra, Jesus. Augustine, Anselm, Luther. In between each of these renewal periods, there were major challenges, a shaking of the world and of God's people. There were times that it seemed like the truth of the gospel might be snuffed out entirely. Facing a variety of pressures and taking advantage of opportunities, the church's center of gravity gradually shifted west from the Middle East and then north. Eventually, the church became so corrupt that a powerful renewal was needed, which God provided in the form of the Reformation, the legacy of which we're still enjoying. Neil, you can go down and let the kids know that we're getting close to being done. Since the Reformation, the church has truly gone global, as we heard about this morning with Eunice. And of course, the gospel has been taken all around the world. And in many ways, the church around the world is robust and healthy. So it's gone from Europe, especially to North America, of course, is where we are. And since then, the church seems to be thriving, especially right now in Africa, in Asia, and in South America. But the fundamental shifts in thinking that made the Reformation possible, when those shifts were taken farther than the Reformers anticipated, resulted in the fracturing and the rampant skepticism that we now see, especially here in North America and, of course, in Europe as well. The dream of human progress that was also a byproduct of the Reformation has turned into a nightmare with one author recently saying, the real question is whether humanity can survive progress. (laughs) We've destroyed countless global cultures over the last couple hundred years, along with our natural environment. Things are likely to get worse before they get better, but if this cycle holds, The good news is that it seems we're closer than ever to another renewal event. But still, the destruction around us is not slowing down. The 20th century was a cultural catastrophe. It was not only the most violent in history. The cultural changes it ushered in were so fundamental that going back to the old ways has become impossible. And now it seems that an environmental collapse is inevitable which will lead to even greater loss of life and culture. I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't know and that isn't daily in the news, but we've all been hoping that that's not going to happen, that our new gods, science and technology, research and development will save us. But that is a false hope. There is hope, however. It's just not found there. We think that over the last 50 years is when the turn away from God has happened. But as a society, we've been ignoring God and his word for much longer than a century. The reason we were unable to deal wisely with the massive scientific and technological advances that rushed in at the, at the beginning of the 20th century was because although we only recently stopped going to church, For the previous two centuries, most of our pastors were devising clever ways to question what the Bible said, and in doing so, they largely became unable and unqualified to explain it, let alone to hold the church to account. Even in more faithful settings, we became accustomed to congratulating ourselves on our selfishness and greed, the triumph of our culture over the planet. And we often twisted God's word to do so. So it seems to me that a shaking, a shaking of biblical proportions is coming, far greater than anything we've ever seen. And it may last for a century or more. But after that, I believe there will be renewal. And there is, as I said, at every moment, wherever you are, whenever you are, at every moment there is hope. Haggai calls us to consider our ways, our actions and our attitudes. Haggai calls us to a hopeful challenge to build the temple. What is the temple? That temple is the Church of Christ. Hebrews 12 offers us a word of even greater hope. It invites us to that temple, to Mount Zion, where the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What that means is that the justice that Abel's blood cries out for as it seeps into a soil polluted by greed and corruption and ambition is more than met in the blood of our great mediator, the divine representative, the signet ring, the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus, the Anointed One, Jesus, our Messiah. That is to say, hope is not to be found in doubling down on technology, nor is it to be found in a return to a pre-modern way of life, if that were even possible. Our hope is found by trusting in Jesus Christ, in the new covenant made by his shed blood, trusting in Jesus Christ, who does not speak a word, as Neil said at the beginning of our service, he does not speak a word of condemnation and hopelessness, but who, as Paul wrote to Timothy, gave himself as a ransom for all, who is the only mediator between God and humanity. The trouble is that it's possible to exercise that hope in churches in ways that stand in direct opposition to that hope. What I mean is that inspired by spiritual forces that have always set themselves in opposition to God, we in the church, particularly in North America, often still celebrate human power. We in the church often build on the foundation of Christ with things that Paul calls gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw, things that may impress us but which will not stand the eternal shaking that God promises through Haggai and Hebrews. To use the Hebrews 12 metaphor, they will be burned up in the consuming fire of God's holiness. This is why it's so urgent, more urgent than ever, to build on the foundation with the materials that God himself has given us. On the foundation of Christ, to whom the apostles and prophets, the Bible, the word of God, bears witness. And that was one of our simple building materials the word of god and to discover there what god calls acceptable worship the word and worship another building block that will remain to lift up holy hands in prayer as paul says in first timothy 2 to pray for our leaders navigating difficult times, to pray for ourselves that we may live godly and peaceful lives for freedom from anger or despair at the state of the world, that we would resist the temptation to quarrel among ourselves, a sustained focus on these lasting things, the word of God, worship, and prayer, The word impressed upon us by Christ and prayer anointed by his spirit will, by God's grace, adorn us with the modesty and self-control that Paul talks to Timothy about. The modesty that acknowledges the shame of our sinfulness but feels the humble gratitude that we have or should have at being set free. They also lead us to good works, good works that actually last, that sustain and develop relationships that last, that build the temple of God with our friends and family across boundaries of generations, boundaries of status, boundaries of race in ways that last. Haggai tells us, consider your ways. Is it time to busy ourselves with our own houses? Or is it time to build God's house? Be strong and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you that I can trust you to work. When everything goes wrong, and especially when everything goes wrong, we can see you working because it's not obscured by our vanity. Oh God, I pray that you would teach us how to build with materials that last. I pray that you would help us to consider our ways, to consider how we may build and prioritize building your temple, the temple of your Holy Spirit, with your word, resting on your word, offering you acceptable worship, and devoting ourselves to prayer with humble hearts to do good works. We thank you for your goodness, amen.